Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, We are today in Acts 27, so we're getting close to the end. Um, Back in Acts 21, to give some context of what's going on here, we saw that Paul returned to Jerusalem after completing his third missionary journey uh, in the Roman Empire. While in Jerusalem, he then participated in a purification rite at the temple. It was during that time that some Jews from Asia who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of of Pentecost saw him. They started a riot trying to kill Paul. They accused him of speaking against the Jewish people, speaking against the law of Moses, speaking against the temple. The Roman commander was able to rescue Paul from the mob, but he did allow Paul to speak to the mob. He then spoke to them about the fact that as a Jewish man, He had put his faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. He made sure to emphasize that he was not against the Jewish people. He was not against the law of Moses or the prophets, and that he was not against the temple. Well, that first defense took place in Acts 22. From chapters 22 through 26, Paul was called on to defend himself a total of five different times. Every chance he got, he spoke of his faith in Jesus Christ. Every chance he got, he made it clear that he fully believed what was written in the law and the prophets, and that just like every committed Jew did. The difference was that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah that the law and prophets promised. He was the hope of the promise that all the Jews were looking for. The civil magistrates that Paul appeared before were all convinced that Paul had done nothing that was worthy of death, nothing worthy of imprisonment, but they kept him in prison really as a favor to the Jews, to the Jewish leaders in particular. And so both, so both the Jewish leaders and the civil magistrates were wrong in their actions they were taking against Paul. God used their sins to give Paul opportunities, multiple opportunities, to speak to governors, to speak to kings. In his fifth and final defense, which is in Acts 26, Paul spoke to Herod Agrippa II. But Festus, the governor of Judea, was also there, along with a number of Roman commanders, prominent men, it said also, from the city of Caesarea. And Paul gave a strong testimony of Jesus with a focus on the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures had prophesied. Well, no one expressed faith in Christ, at least outwardly that we know of, but Agrippa and Festus got together and agreed that Paul had done nothing that was deserving of death or deserving of imprisonment. However, Paul had appealed uh, to, uh, to have his case heard before Caesar because he was getting such unjust treatment He appealed to have his case heard before Caesar, so it was determined that he would be sent to Caesar, even though they had no charges of any substance against him. So, in Acts 27, uh, Luke gives us a lengthy and detailed account of the beginning of Paul's journey by sea to Rome. So, let's start by looking at verses 1 to 14 of Acts 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, 
we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived at Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our own lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there arose down from the land a violent wind called Eroquilo, which means a northeaster. So first we see in verse 1 that Paul was included with a number of other prisoners who were assigned to a Roman centurion by the name of Julius. It was his job to make sure that the prisoners made it safely to Rome. We also see, by the way, that Luke is with Paul on this journey. And in verse 2, we see that Aristarchus, a disciple from Thessalonica, is also with them. Well, very early in this chapter, we see also that Luke gives great detail, really, about every stop they made along the way. There are so many geographical references that I decided to attach a map on the back of your sermon outline that will probably be helpful to you. In addition, all through this chapter, Luke gives great attention to the weather, which makes perfect sense because it was the weather that caused their ship to wreck and be destroyed. So with these things in mind, I want us to consider the first point on your outline. The journey to get Paul to Rome is a vivid reminder that God is sovereign over the earth, wind, and water. God is sovereign over the earth, wind, and water. I'm sure this is something that we're all aware of, but I think it will be really important for us to think about it a little more specifically and from a biblical perspective. First, we know that God is sovereign over the earth. He's the creator of the world. We know from Genesis 1 that he's the one who created the land and the seas. He's the one who determined the existence of continents, islands, peninsulas, he is the one who determined where the seas and the lakes and the rivers would be. If you look at your map, you can see on the back there, you can see the Adriatic Sea, the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea all designated there. All of those seas and the land masses around them are there because God created them, and that is how he determined to structure them. <clears throat> when Paul was preaching in Athens, in Acts 17, 
he made reference to these things in his sermon. I'm going to read for you from Acts 17, 24 to 26. <clears throat> Paul says, The God who made the world and all things in it, <clears throat> since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So not only did God make the heavens and the earth, heavens, by the way, is everything. I mean, heavens and the highest heavens. The heavens and the earth, he made the world, all things in it. He also established the various nations of people and the boundaries of where they live. Now, those national boundaries sometimes have changed over the centuries, but the Lord is sovereign over those changes as well. The map shows that Paul's journey actually began in Jerusalem. That, of course, is where the riot broke out against him when he was first, where he was first held captive. He was then moved to Caesarea, uh, more on the coast, to escape the just murderous plots of some Jewish men and, and their leaders. Well, in Caesarea, Julius finds an Adramitium ship. You can see that region up in the Aegean Sea area. Well, they take this ship to Sidon, which is in Phoenicia. We then see that they sailed under the shelter of the island of Cyprus, and that means they sailed close by its shore to have some shelter from the wind. From there, they land in Myra of the region of Lycia, at that point, they change ships. So they are now on a ship that has come from Alexandria, Egypt, and is on its way to Italy. Rome, we know that Rome did an extensive trade uh, in wheat with Egypt. And this ship actually is carrying wheat. We see that later in, the, in, the, uh, in Acts 27. Luke tells us that they next sailed to Sinaitis. This was slow going because the winds were against them. And from there, they sailed to a place called Fair Havens, which was on the south side of the island of Crete. It was at this point that a decision had to be made because it was getting to the time of the year when the weather made it more dangerous to sail. Luke says specifically that the fast was over. Now, what he's referring to there is the Day of Atonement. So this was in the September, uh, even probably even more over into the October time frame, pretty much close to one, what, what, uh, our date here, early October. And there was apparently a ship's council that was, that was held to talk about what to do. Paul would have been invited because he was an experienced traveler. We know from 2 Corinthians 11.25, for example, Paul had already been in three different shipwrecks. So he was very concerned about continuing the journey at this time of year. But Julius and the ship captain felt like Fair Havens was not a good place to to park the ship for the winter. They wanted to go further to the west side of Crete where harbor was more suitable. So that's what they did or what they attempted to do. Well, as we said, every detail of the sea and the land and the natural harbors of the island of Crete were placed there by God. The travelers also had some trouble with, the, with wind and there was more trouble to come. Well, God is sovereign over the wind. In Acts 27, they were concerned about wind, storms, because they're more prominent in the winter months. 
Well, God ordained the seasons. And since he has also determined where every island and sea would be, that affects the winds. But wind and storms are not just explained by the seasons of the year and the position of the seas and the islands. God is the one who brings the winds when they come and stills them when they stop blowing. I want us to look at a couple examples here from Psalm 107, just to remind ourselves of who's in charge of this. Psalm 107, verse 23 to 25 says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And we'll skip down to verse 29. He calls the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. So God commands the stormy wind, which includes hurricanes, by the way, which we're very much aware of because of what's going on in Florida and South Carolina and so forth right now. He commands the winds. He lifts up the waves of the sea. He's also the reason for when the storm is stills and the seas are hushed. The waves are hushed, it says there. This is further confirmed over in Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Well, in Acts 27, 13, we see that when the ship first left Fair Havens, they had a moderate south wind, which was great. That's what they were looking for. But then a violent wind rushed down the land. This was what was called a northeaster. Well, who sent the moderate wind to begin with? God did. Who sent the northeaster that would end up throwing them off course and causing the ship to wreck? God did. So as we consider what Paul and those in this ship experienced, we need to keep in mind that it is God who is sovereign over the earth, the wind, and the water. He could have caused the wind to be still, but he didn't. He could have caused the waves to be hushed, but he didn't. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, and that includes the seas. There are many people who get more comfort by thinking of all this as just being haphazard because that's the way nature works. Nature is the work of God, and he is the one who controls the wind and the storms. When we believe that, we can have confidence to trust God in the midst of those storms. That's much more helpful, I think, than putting our confidence in random processes and and even weather reports. Another thing that stands out to me in this chapter is uh, our second main point, Luke's detailed account of the journey and shipwreck is a reminder of how God has called man to take dominion, to take dominion over creation and uses him to accomplish his purposes. When God created man back in Genesis 1, uh, 27, 28, we read this. God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So a major part of God's sovereign governance over the world is that he has called man to subdue or take dominion over his creation. My favorite definition of what taking dominion means is this. We are, made, we are to make all things flourish to the glory of God. Taking dominion is making all things flourish to the glory of God. So recognizing God's sovereignty over all things does not give us an excuse to do nothing. Not at all. God gives us this beautiful and amazing world and the abilities that he's granted us as human beings, and we are called to use them for his glory. Part of being a human being made in the image of God is having the desire and ability to take dominion over his creation. How do you do that? Well, some examples. Cooking a meal. Mowing the grass. Vacuuming the carpets. Pulling weeds. Washing clothes. Making up your bed. Learning to read and to write. Drawing a picture, organizing your desk. I mean, you get the idea? That's what taking dominion is. There are all kinds of examples of people who have taken, and you could say even are taking dominion over creation in this, in this room. Electricity. Plumbing. Having a sound system. Instruments for making music. Chairs to sit on. Bathrooms. Thank the Lord. Doors. Ceiling tiles. Glasses to help us see if we need that kind of help. Just on and on and on. There are also many notable examples of this in Acts 27. There are people who obviously knew how to build ships. People who knew how to navigate the waters. Sailors who knew how to steer those ships, even in a storm. We had the example of Luke, who took dominion over words and grammar to write this detailed account for us. We have a centurion and other soldiers who understood military life and responsibilities. At the end of the chapter, we see people who knew how to swim. Knowing how to swim is taking dominion. All of these things and more, I mean, it's just, you could, basically it's an endless example here of, men, of people taking dominion. All of these things are examples of people, that, of people that God created to take dominion over his creation and ways that it's been done and ways it's continuing to be done. Admittedly, most of the people had little or no thought of honoring God and what they were doing in taking dominion here. But God could use them to accomplish his purposes anyway, and he does in this chapter, and he does it, all, he does it every day. So let's now read what happened when they decide to continue their trip west of the, their, their sea voyage west of, on the west side of Crete. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up in verse 14 and read uh, to the end of the chapter. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Araquilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. 
running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, <clears throat> Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night arrived, <coughs> as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little farther on they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Actually, that's literally prayed for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they, took them, they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, <coughs> and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. <clears throat> the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to the land, and the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Pretty amazing and involved story. 
And God clearly had a purpose <coughs> in what he did here. And there are many different people <coughs> that he used to accomplish this purpose. So in our third main point, we see this. In the midst of this great ordeal are reminders of man's responsibility before God to live in ways that honor him. So the Lord showed himself strong through the lives of several people in this story. First, let's consider Julius, the Roman centurion. There's no evidence here that Julius was a believer. But the Lord most definitely used him in some very significant ways in this story. He's first introduced to us as the, uh, in verse 1 as the centurion who was given the responsibility to get Paul and some other prisoners to Rome. So he is serving as a civil magistrate following the orders of those who were in authority over him. He had a big job, and that job was made more, more difficult because of the bad storm and, of course, the shipwreck that took place. But he succeeded in his task. It's interesting to note that in verse 3, we see that Julius treated Paul with consideration, allowed him to go to his friends and receive care when they stopped in the, the town of Sidon. So Julius clearly felt like he could trust Paul. Why was that? Well, we don't know for sure, but some speculate that he may have been among the people who were in, that, in the gathering when, when Paul defended himself before King Agrippa. There were a number of military people there, so that's not a stretch at all to think he would have been, possibly would have been there. And by hearing Paul speak, he understood what kind of man Paul was, and he obviously understood that he was guilty of no crime, and even if he wasn't there, he may well have been told that by those who gave him the authority to take Paul and others to Rome. But he, he obviously thinks he can trust Paul. Julius also shows up in the decision to continue on the journey instead of staying in Fairhaven. He heard Paul's concerns about going forward, but he was persuaded more by the ship's pilot, commander, and maybe even the, uh, the one who owned the ship, might have been the same person, that it was worth going on so that they could find a better place to spend the winter. I don't really fault him for that decision. He was just taking input from people who had insight into the issue and then made what seemed to be the best decision to him. Julius was also part of two other life-and-death kind of decisions. As the ship was blown more off course, the situation became more and more bleak, and we see what happened in verse 30 to 32. There it says, As the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat, it's like a lifeboat, into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, who is Julius, and to the soldiers, unless these remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. So the sailors were afraid that the ship was getting ready to crash into some rocks. They had taken measurements uh, to, de to determine the depth of the water, and, and they thought they were, according to those measurements, they were getting closer to solid ground. The sailors said they were going to let down this lifeboat and go out and lay out some anchors for the ship. Most people accepted, accepted this as a reasonable thing to do, but it was a ruse. That was not what they were doing. They were intending to escape because they thought their chances of survival were better on their own. Paul was a seasoned traveler, as we said, 
and he recognized what was going on. And he went and warned Julius about it. Julius had his soldiers go and cut the ropes to the lifeboat so they just fell out into the, into the sea and the sailors couldn't use it. And Paul said that if these experienced sailors, if they left, then the passengers on the ship were not going to survive. Well, finally we see that when the ship did run aground, the soldiers were planning to kill the prisoners to make sure no one escaped. That's because if they did escape, they would likely be executed for losing their prisoners. But Julius stopped them. He had a responsibility to get these prisoners, especially Paul, to Caesar, and he intended to carry out his duty. And it was because of his attention to duty that Paul and the other prisoners were spared. It's encouraging when you see someone working with the civil authorities as a civil authority themselves, being responsible, being trustworthy, and carrying out the job that's been given to them. Again, it doesn't seem that he was a Christian, but he actually honored God with the actions that he took. And God clearly used Julius to accomplish different aspects of his purposes. Second, let's consider the sailors on the ship. The sailors on the ship. One thing that really stands out in this chapter is all of the things that had to be done to navigate this ship. Luke apparently had a real interest and understanding of these things to be able to write with such detail. The sailors were the men who were experienced and had taken dominion over the craft of sailing a ship through all kinds of weather. Amazing skills to have. All through the chapter are examples of this. The map will help you kind of follow the actions of the sailors as I'm kind of going to try to go through it here. In verse 4, they had to sail close to the shoreline of Cyprus because of difficult winds. In verse 7, they had to go slowly because of contrary winds that caused them to have to sail close to the shoreline of the island of Crete. In verse 14 and 15, we see that the northeaster was so strong that they had to take down the sails and let the storm drive them. They sailed under the shelter of a small island named Clauda to help try to get the ship more under control in the middle of the storm. Next, we see that they used some cables to strengthen the hull of the ship so it wouldn't break apart under the strain of what was happening in the storm. When they came to the sandbanks of Sirtis, they let down sea anchors. The next day, they began throwing cargo overboard because the ship was being so violently shaken by the storm. In verse 27, the sailors surmised that they were approaching some land. They took soundings, uh, measurements, and saw that the water was becoming more shallow. To keep from smashing into rocks, they let down four anchors. In verse 38, they threw over the wheat cargo that they were carrying. And then they recognized a bay. They couldn't make out the whole island, but they recognized a bay and steered the ship into it. Uh, look again at verse 40 and 41, how that's just the detail that Luke describes this with. He says, And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. This island, by the way, turned out to be the island of Malta, 
These men knew their craft. They were absolutely vital to the sailing of the ship and the safety of the passengers. Again, there's no indication that any of them were believers. <clears throat> In fact, we've already noted they would have abandoned the ship unless Paul had noticed what they were doing and trying to leave. But to their credit, they did their jobs, and the Lord used them to accomplish his purposes. Trained and qualified workmen in any field are a true blessing. Finally, let's consider what we see in Paul. Look, at, look again at verses 20 to 26. It says, Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small, small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. For I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. I think we can sum up these, uh, we can sum up in three statements, I think, how Paul conducted himself in this whole ordeal. First is this, he was a servant of the Lord. He was a servant of the Lord. So at a time when all aboard the ship were very discouraged, Paul stood up to talk with them. He tells them that an angel of God had just appeared to him and given him a message. But before Paul gives the message, in verse 23, he identifies himself. Besides just his name, he says, he uses the, the appearance of the angel to say, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. That's Paul's identity. I belong to this God and he's the one that I serve. So he recognized that the one true God is his rightful owner. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves, as we read in Psalm 100 earlier. Therefore, we all belong to him as our creator. Paul also belongs to God because he is Paul's redeemer. Jesus Christ paid the price for his sin through his death on the cross. In Christ, Paul is redeemed and fully forgiven. Therefore, Paul thankfully belongs to the one true God. And because the Lord had changed his heart, caused him to be born above, born again by the Spirit of God, the Lord God had changed Paul's life, so Paul serves him. It is his duty, it's his delight to be a servant of the Lord. So no matter what Paul's circumstances were, he engaged those circumstances as a servant of the Lord. When Jews stirred up a riot in the temple in Jerusalem to try to kill Paul, Paul responded as a servant of the Lord. He gave a testimony to them of Christ. When further plots were made against him to try to kill him, Paul continued to serve the Lord. When Paul was held in prison unlawfully for two years, 
he continued to serve the Lord. When he was called on to testify before Governor Felix and Governor Festus and King Herod Agrippa, Paul took every opportunity given to him to testify of Christ. And now while he's on a ship that is about to be shipwrecked, Paul goes through the whole situation as a servant of the Lord. No matter what our outward circumstances might be, as Christians, we always live as servants of the Lord. Paul is an excellent example of that. Second thing we see about Paul is this. He spoke truth from God. He spoke truth from God. It was in Acts 23, after a discouraging time before the Sanhedrin to defend himself, that Jesus Christ appeared to Paul. And here's what Jesus said to him. This is back in Acts 23. The Lord said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. It was at that point then that the Lord assured Paul that no matter what barriers might stand in front of him, the Lord was going to see to it that Paul made it to Rome to testify of Christ there before Caesar. Well, here we see that the Lord reinforced that promise through these words from the angel. Paul shared this, the, the truth, uh, that truth with the discouraged passengers, the midst of a terrible storm. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Paul had obviously been, been praying during this voyage. He had, he had been praying about the storm. He had been praying about the ship. He had been praying about the sailors. He had been praying about the rest of the passengers, which were some fellow prisoners, who knows what they were like, who were on the ship. Well, God answered his prayer and had mercy on all the fellow passengers with him the majority of which were certainly not Christians. The biggest part were probably idolaters who had their own gods that they worshipped. You probably noticed in verse 21 that Paul begins his words to the pastors by telling them, you should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete. I don't think this is Paul trying to rub their face in it. I don't think this is Paul gloating. I was right. You were wrong. I think what he was saying was that he, I think he was saying this to get them to give serious attention to what he was now going to tell them. In other words, the first time I shared with you about what was going to happen on the, what, about this voyage, I was right. Now, listen to what I'm going to tell you now. You can trust what I tell you. I think that's the reason he brought that up at the beginning to get them to see this was a man we can trust. He was right the first time. Maybe he's probably right this time as well. I think that was the whole purpose behind that. So Paul was a servant of the Lord. He was committed to sharing the truth of God, even if those who were listening did not believe in the one true God. He shared with all of them what was going on. Finally, we see this. He encouraged the people. He encouraged the people. Paul's words to the passengers were in the context of everyone on the ship beginning to give up all hope of being saved 
of even being of even sur- surviving this great storm. So after sharing with them, he says in verse 25, they need to keep up their courage. He fully believed that the angel had revealed to him what would come to pass. They may not believe it at all, but he had been right before. They should trust him now. All 276 persons were going to be saved from this storm. The ship would be lost. They would run aground on an island, but they would all make it through. Well, soon after this is when he caught the sailors trying to escape on the lifeboat. They obviously did not believe what Paul had shared. But notice something very important here. Paul had given all the passengers a guarantee from the Lord of the wind and the sea that they would all be saved. But when he spoke to Julius and the soldiers about the sailors who were trying to leave, he says, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Is that a bit odd? He had just assured them that their lives would all be spared. But now, if the sailors leave, you can't be saved. God is sovereign. He decrees all things whatsoever come to pass. Some sailors cannot get in the way of what God purposes to accomplish. But the point here is this. God not only ordains how something will end, he ordains the means to that end as well. It was God's will to use the expertise of these non-Christian, probably idolatrous sailors to bring every passenger on that ship safely through the storm and through the shipwreck. And there's a principle here for us. When you're thinking through an important decision or dealing with a particular issue, you often need to get counsel and help from others. If there's a financial decision, you may need to talk with someone who knows more about that than you do. If it's a decision about a car, about a house, about a job, it may be wise to talk with someone who knows things about those particular areas that you don't know the experts that you know. You can trust the Lord to shepherd you through every challenge in life, but don't act like a superhero who thinks you're strong enough or smart enough because you know everything and you can do it on your own. You can't, and I can't. God has provided, has put in our lives all kinds of experts in various ways, and they know things that you and I don't know. And it's important to be humble enough to ask for help. These sailors knew how to sail. They knew what to do. And so God says, if they leave, you won't be saved because I'm, going to use, I'm using the experts to get you through. One other thing to note about Paul's ministry of encouragement toward the people during this terrible ordeal is what we see in verses 33 to 38. They've been, he says there they've been fighting this storm for 14 days. In the process... Because of the great stress they were under, they had eaten very little. Some of them, it seemed like they maybe eaten anything. But they, obviously, there were not set meal times. They had not really given time to eat. 
Well, Paul again encouraged them. He says, now, not a hair of the head on the head of any passenger is going to, is going to perish. We're all going to make it. But you need to eat something. You need to get something to eat. He himself then took some bread. He gave thanks before God for all of it, and he ate some. Then the rest of the people began to eat as well. After that, they threw the wheat overboard. Paul had an extremely important ministry of encouragement during this voyage. God sent the storm. God provided the sailors. God provided Julius. He also provided Paul to encourage these people who were without hope and were full of fear. We can trust the Lord to shepherd us through every aspect of our lives, including every storm. We also trust that he will send people to come alongside to help us. Oftentimes, we may be the ones that he calls alongside to help someone else through their storm. But no matter what our circumstances are, we always live through those things and in those things as servants of God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you just for an amazing testimony to your providential care over Paul and everyone who was on this ship. We thank you for the, just the reminder of the fact that you are sovereign over the wind and the rain and the storms, and even when it's dry and sunny like it is here for us today. You are sovereign over every aspect of the weather. We give that to you. We also know that you have given us responsibility to make the best of the opportunities you have given us. Help us to be people who take dominion over things in our lives, to be responsible, to make the most of what we know, and to continue to learn and to apply those things in our lives. At the same time, knowing that as we do that, we do that to honor you, not to make people impressed with us, but to honor you. Lord, we want to thank you especially that you have provided a Savior for us. And because of that Savior, our sins can be forgiven. May we can be made right with God, and we can truly be your servant, no matter what our circumstances might be. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to consider that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have not measured up to what you, my Creator, have called me to be and to do. But thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to follow him as the Lord of my life. I want to be his servant. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.